BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, is often associated with young boys. But the medical fact is that millions of adults of all genders have ADHD. Life during the pandemic, with its shifts in schedules and intense demand for multitasking, made some people realize that the disorder they were feeling was actually ADHD. In other instances, parents in the process of getting their own children diagnosed with ADHD realized that they suffered from many of the same symptoms as their kids. So today, we're talking ADHD in adults, busting some myths, learning from the experience of it, and separating this specific experience from the chaos of these last few years. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maybe it's because of how widespread the diagnosis of ADHD has become, or maybe it's because many people don't understand what it actually is, or maybe it's because so many of us feel our attention has scattered between kids and screens and jobs and partners. But many people like to say they have ADD or think they have ADD or ADHD. On Instagram and on TikTok, multiple startups promise fast and easy medical consultations that will get you access to ADHD medications, including the stimulants like Adderall. The truth is, not everyone has ADHD, but for people whose brains do work that way, they really, really suffer. It's not a trivial condition. So to help us sort out the cultural idea of ADHD from the medical reality, we're joined by Stephen Hinshaw, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Hinshaw is also a Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. His latest book, Straight Talk About ADHD in Girls, is released this month. And he's also the author of Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. Welcome to the show, Stephen Hinshaw. Thanks so much. It's great to be back on. So in the pandemic, in the pandemic anecdotally, we've heard... So many people say things to the effect of sort of adult onset of ADHD. Is there such a thing where you develop ADHD as an adult? 
So this has been a, a controversial issue for the last five, six, seven years. As a, around the world, several big sample studies, not just of people with ADHD, but of the general population, have revealed that in their teens or 20s or even beyond, a subset of people report a kind of sudden onset of ADHD. And without getting into too many details, a number of other studies subsequently have looked carefully at when does ADHD really start to exhibit itself? It's called a neurodevelopmental disorder, mm -hmm. which means that it should start in childhood and then maybe persist into the adolescent and adult years. It turns out that many of the people with so-called adult onset ADHD have actually been struggling with some of the symptoms and underlying issues, which we can talk about subsequently, but it took maybe getting into middle school or high school, or maybe the press for independence of getting out of secondary education if you completed it, close relationships, the workforce, where the different environment and the different press for uh, attention and information processing really revealed more fully these underlying trends. So as I sometimes say, if you wake up one day at age 35 and suddenly have ADHD and come in for a consultation, the first question the clinician probably should ask you is, A, when did you have that recent head injury? Or B, what drugs have you been taking? Right. It's very rare to suddenly wake up with it. But especially for girls, which will be another uh, topic that I hope we pick up on, girls and women, ADHD is often more hidden in childhood. Girls are more likely to have the more purely inattentive variety or form of ADHD, which often doesn't manifest, especially if the girl is coping and the family supporting until middle school, high school, or mm -hmm. even beyond. And as our other guest, Sarah Chung, will tell us soon, maybe you don't actually get diagnosed with ADHD until you're a grad student. So in the pandemic, in our information-rich uh, and highly competitive era with all that's going on, many people say, hey, there is something called adult ADHD. We used to think that ADHD was a boy thing. It stopped when you had puberty. So maybe I have it too. And a key point is you can't diagnose ADHD quickly and lightly through an app or through a 15-minute visit with a general pediatrician. What, what general does it take? Yeah. What does it take to diagnose ADHD, particularly in adults? What does it take? So for kids and adults, first of all, there needs to be a really thorough history, sitting down maybe at first with an open-ended questionnaire and then with a clinician and going through uh, birth records, early childhood milestones, problems at home and school, homework, organizing your information. And for adults in particular, it's really required, although often difficult to do, depending on your age and who's still around in your family, to have some record of, if not a formal diagnosis, struggles with attention and self-regulation in your historical record. Often uh, characteristic of people with ADHD is uh, in grade school or middle school, uh, everything from A to F and every grade in between. It's the consistent inconsistency and without a lot of structure and support is often when the bottom will fall out. So again, this is going to take several hours of work, not a quick questionnaire online or, or, or a quick uh, impression by a clinician. So 
How do you differentiate between someone who says, like, you know, I, I'm feeling scattered, I'm feeling disorganized, you know, uh, I, let's just say this person is myself. <laughs> it's difficult to keep track of the many different things going on in, in life. And someone who has a, the diagnosable disorder of ADHD. Well, the holy grail, of course, is maybe there's a brain signature or a blood test that would de determine definitively whether someone has or does not have ADHD. We don't really have that in mental health yet for depression or bipolar disorder or for ADHD or PTSD. What we have, though, is the kinds of norm-based rating scales and questionnaires. So you can be directly compared with other people your age and gender. And some cognitive tests that can be given. And again, this thorough history that begin to differentiate everybody's post, post, mid, wherever we are, pandemic syndrome and the information onslaught that we're all uh, dealing with all the time from a pretty chronic pattern of, and I wanna say something pretty clear here, of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which used to be called ADD, attention deficit disorder. Those are the wrong terms. Someone with ADD or ADHD doesn't have a problem in paying attention per se. Many people with ADHD have what's called hyperfocus. When you get into an activity that you really favor, deeply intrinsically motivating to you, video games <laughs> for many people, you can't shake it. You do 10 hours failing to eat or take breaks. ADHD is a condition of poor regulation of attention as situations change, as you go from algebra to English to foreign language, as you go from secondary school to the transitional age of becoming more independent, using your educational skills, not taking it up with the first boss you have. It's really a self-regulatory disorder rather than an mm -hmm. attention deficit per se. And again, this requires some subtle and long lasting assessments to distinguish normal every day, I'm scattered from a much more chronic pattern of impairment related to that scatteredness. Mm. We are talking about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, ways to learn to cope and live with the condition. We're joined by Steve Hinshaw, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, as well as a Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. We'd love to hear your story. Have you been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, and what led you to seek out a diagnosis? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED4, and the email is forum at kqed.org. So with children, Steve, this condition, people have talked a lot about the overdiagnosis of children. Um, when it comes to adults, do you think this is a condition that's prone to overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, and is it different for different demographic groups? Well, you gave two choices, but I'm going to answer C, both of the above. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with kids. Amazingly, researchers around the world have compiled evidence from almost every nation on earth of school-age kids. And it, what's remarkable is, despite different interviews or diagnostic rating scales, about 5 to 6 to 7% of kids around the world, maybe not in a subsistence culture where the big problem is getting enough food and there's not compulsory education. 
but a remarkably similar five to six to seven percent of kids meet criteria for ADHD, which would make one suspect that there's a set of genes, not one or two or 20, but maybe hundreds that put together up the risk for poor self-regulation. And in fact, the genetics of ADHD strongly suggest a strong genetic liability. However, there's a couple of countries that have right now about double the world average, and one of them is the US and another is Israel. Very high performance uh, cultures where there's a premium on achievement at all costs. So uh, back on forum some years ago, I was on with my co-author Richard Scheffler, professor uh, of health economics at UC Berkeley. And we did an analysis that shows that even in our country, state by state, States that put a huge premium on achievement test scores above all else have many more kids, especially kids near the poverty line, diagnosed with ADHD mm. in order to help them get services or to actually try to boost the uh, test score averages of the district. Because for a while, if you had ADHD and were a special ed kid, uh, you got taken out of your district's test scores. So what about adults? With adults, you don't live most of the time with your family anymore, though some adults do. You're not in the structure of school. So we rely much more on self-report. Although, as I noted before, getting a history, school records, former grades, uh, talking with partners, even employers, is a huge issue. It turns out that around 50% of kids who get carefully diagnosed with ADHD continue to meet the full spectrum, if you will, of symptoms in adulthood. Although very recent studies show that if you kind of ease off on a symptom or two, because we all fidget less when we're 30 than when we're 10, it may be closer to 75 or 80 percent of kids with ADHD still have some impairing symptoms that interfere with relationships and works and pursuit of higher education, etc. So, Adults with ADHD do exist. Myth number one, ADHD stops at puberty is, is a myth. Number two, girls turning into women are actually at a higher risk than guys, boys turning into men for a more persistent form of ADHD because girls tend to have, again, the more exclusively spacey, inattentive, disorganized presentation, more boys tend to have the Tom Sawyer syndrome running around a classroom obstreperous. And those inattentive symptoms persist into adulthood much more. We're talking about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, ways to cope and live with the condition with Steve Hinshaw, distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF as well. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about ADHD in adults and ways to cope and live with the condition. We're joined by Steve Hinshaw, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at University of California, Berkeley's latest book, Straight Talk About ADHD in Girls, is released this month. Also want to welcome Sarah Chung to Forum. She's a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the UCSF School of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Yeah, Alexis, thanks so much for having me. So, Sarah, you were diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. And looking back, were there signs when you were a kid that maybe you had ADHD? Yeah, well, uh, I got my diagnosis in graduate school, ironically, as I was getting a PhD in clinical psychology. And, of course, with hindsight now, everything seems to make sense. What I had been experiencing um, predominantly from middle school onwards were, to me back then, signs of depression, um, very serious, severe depression, as well as anxiety. And that was my narrative from then. And so uh, all of the attention, concentration, struggling through college, struggling to keep interested in my tasks and my jobs, were coming from mood and anxiety issues. And it wasn't until I received that diagnosis and got on a medication regimen and found a treatment that works that it really made sense. Was it kind of hard for you yourself to believe you had ADHD? I mean, if you're in graduate school at UCSF in a PhD program, you're clearly pretty high performing despite the the disorder. So how how did you approach the idea that you might have ADHD? Like, no, no way could I have that. <laughs> right. It was actually uh, going to multiple therapists <laughs> to treat the depression, anxiety, and I think telling my story to them and having them really encourage me to get a diagnosis. Um, And even then, when I received, uh, when I went through the assessment process that Steve mentioned, um, which was a very intensive process that uh, went across multiple days, I was still in doubt, honestly. Mm. (laughs) I received a preliminary diagnosis and I shelved it. I kept it um, just, you know, put away. I told myself I'm just not going to (laughs) really focus on that next thing. (laughs) It didn't come back until I experienced um, what I felt like was a very large unexpected setback um, in my graduate school career. And that motivated me to seek yet another therapist Mm. um, who encouraged me to go ahead and try the medication um, and find something that would work better for myself. And so what did happen when you went on the medication? Oh, wow. I felt like it was a transition to my real self and it was immediate. I felt like time slowed down 
that I was in beat with everything and everyone around me. I wasn't two steps behind or five steps ahead all the time. Um, I remember distinctly, I was at a brewery with several friends and typically I dreaded group get togethers. There, it's noisy, it's crowded, there's so much stimulation. It's really hard to tune into any conversation. But on the medication, I understood the jokes when they were said instead of just fake laughing when I thought it was the right moment. <laughs> I understood the topics of conversation. I could stay on topic with my responses instead of speaking in circles and getting off tangent. Um, and a moment where it really hit me like, wow, this is it, was when I listened to music that I had always listened to and I could hear and understand the lyrics in real time. And I cried, actually. It was like a transcendent musical experience for the first time. And my husband told me that now I look like I'm comfortable in my own skin for the first mm. time since he's known me. So what advice do you have for people who are coping with ADHD for the first time as an adult? Hmm. I would say that... What has really helped me through is think about the strengths that you have. And this is something that, um, you know, finding a really supportive spouse and a really supportive group of friends have taught me that everyone with ADHD, yes, it is difficult. It makes a lot of things a lot harder than maybe they quote unquote should be, but there are so many strengths that the brain with ADHD has, and it's really easy to miss that in the midst of all the self-doubt and self-hate that can come with the missed appointments, missed assignments, missed milestones. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for sharing this experience with us, Sarah Chung. Um, stay, stay with us, though, because I think it might be great as we get to some more people on the phones to have someone okay. like you who's been, been, been around the block. Um, Steve, Henshaw, I wanted to ask you a question just about, the, you know, in other disorders like in Asperger's or sort of on the autism spectrum, there's this idea of the spectrum or the continuum that exists there. Does ADHD exist in that same realm, like uh, where there are people who have much more severe problems and, and less so, and then there's some people who maybe have some features of the disorder but wouldn't actually be technically diagnosed as ADHD? Yes, absolutely. When I was in grad school a long time ago, we learned that you had or did not have bipolar disorder. We now call it the bipolar spectrum of disorders. You clearly had autism, now autism spectrum disorders, but now they are on a spectrum and the same is true with ADHD. There's no magic cutoff on a structured interview or a parent or teacher rating scale or a self-report scale as to, it's like blood pressure. At what point do you go from normal to mild to actual hypertension? It's a judgment call. It depends on other parameters. With ADHD, as with other uh, mental and neurodevelopmental disorders, we often look to see two people might have the exact same number of reported symptoms, but one is in a classroom that, as a kid, encourages standing for part of the day and the teacher's supportive yet structured and another is a very rigid classroom where no one can breathe too loud and in the case of the more supportive environment the ADHD symptoms aren't that impairing but they're terribly so in the other so it's a matter of degree 
It's a matter of the support and the setting. I completely agree with Sarah. It's a matter of finding strengths and using them for the reward programs that families set up or the self-reward programs that adults set up and going with the strengths, even though that might lead to a less traditional career pathway than many people mm. have thought. So, mm. yes, it's clearly on a continuum. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, our first caller, Megan in Petaluma. Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, tell for, us your story. So um, this is such a, a great topic, um, and I'm really glad that you're being so open about it because um, one of my missions is to really kind of talk a lot about my diagnosis and my, my child's diagnosis to help remove stigma and shame around having ADHD. Um, I think it's pretty common for parents to realize through the process of their child being diagnosed with ADHD that they might actually have ADHD as well. And that's what happened with me in my late 30s. And um, when I figured out that all of the things that I'd kind of chalked up throughout my life to um, just being lazy or disorganized or just a hot mess generally, um, there, there was a reason. It was really liberating and gave me a lot of hope and um, having the tools and um, the treatment to be able to function in the way that other people seem to just be able to live their lives was really powerful for me and really changed my life in a positive way. And so I talk a lot about the fact that I have ADHD. And um, like Sarah, I was um, pretty high achieving in school. Um, I could definitely hyper focus on um, reading and writing. Those were kind of my things. And in um, you know the academic world, um, it was really easy for people to look at me on the surface and think that I was um, you know gifted. And so um, it was what were the signs uh, for you that maybe people, there was something else going on, though? Um, well, the, the, really the thing that was like kind of the catalyst was I had lost a job that I really loved because I missed a stupid little tiny detail. Mm. And there had been a number of incidents where I was missing stupid little tiny details that would have taken me 30 seconds to complete. And I would get really down on myself when things like this would happen and after my daughter had been diagnosed with ADHD, the inattentive type, and um, this, uh, this um, job loss had happened, it caused me to do some introspection and really think back to all the times over the years that I had, you know, missed deadlines or details, mm -hmm. things that seemed like they should have been really easy to complete. And um, I decided to go to a psychiatrist and, and investigate this. And when I filled out my history, he said, wow, do you think maybe you have inattentive ADHD? It's so obvious. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it was really um, empowering for me to receive my diagnosis. Yeah. And that was about six years ago. And how has your life changed since then? Um, well, I ended up getting a new job. I did go on medication right around the time that I started the new job. And I have just been um, excelling at work, which is a new feeling for me. <laughs> I have been so much better able to stay on top of uh, my bills. My credit history has improved um, because I'm not just stuffing bills in the bottom of a pile anymore. And, um, and I also, I think that my relationship with my daughter who has inattentive ADHD has um, been enriched as well because um, I feel like I, I understand her and I'm able to encourage her and talk to her again, like Sarah said about the strengths and um, benefits that having this kind of uh, 
creative and um, unusual way of thinking um, can really be a good thing. Yeah. So um, overall, it was a net positive for me to learn that, that yeah. I had ADHD. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Megan Petaluma. That's a that's a great story. I mean, Steve Hinshaw. You know, people sometimes speak about their conditions as it almost feels like you know flaws. You know, well, I'm just sort of disorganized or I'm I'm spacey. But you've been studying this for a long time, and how do how should we approach the way that people um, assign this kind of moral value to the things that it's sometimes hard for people with ADHD to do? Well, I think this is a really fascinating and important question. <clears throat> One of the areas I'm also studying a lot these days is, is stigma, the stigma that still clings to many mental and neurodevelopmental disorders. And you think that, well, stigma would be reserved for someone with schizophrenia, pretty chronically psychotic, or someone with the extreme highs and lows of bipolar disorder. Well, why would ADHD be stigmatized? It's not as overtly impairing all the time as some other conditions, but sometimes it's the more subtle conditions or the inconsistent ones or the hidden ones. As a caller just said, looked like I was doing fine, pretty high achieving. But the perception is you must not be trying hard. Why didn't you pay attention to that crucial detail? Maybe you're just unmotivated or lazy or kind of a morally flawed person. That's not often an overt judgment, but a covert judgment. Mm -hmm. And we find that there's often a lot of stigma against kids with high functioning autism, so-called Asperger's, ask their parents, because the perception is the kid's just being kind of weird with the more severe autism, people know there must be some underlying neurological disability. So the stigma that surrounds ADHD is part and parcel of this consistent inconsistency and finding strengths, getting on a treatment regimen. Not everybody responds with ADHD to medications uh, the way that Sarah and the, the caller have. Organizational skills training, cognitive behavioral therapies, anger management, and really interesting point that many parents find as their kid is maybe getting assessed, maybe I've had those symptoms for a long time too, which is no surprise given the genetic legacy of ADHD that runs through many families. Mm. We have some great comments coming in. I wanted to read one from Thomas. Thomas writes, I was diagnosed with ADHD in my mid-30s. I was always a good student through school and even completed a PhD. I never sought a diagnosis. Like Sarah, I went through a period of deep depression, and my psychiatrist noticed some things about our interactions that led him to evaluate me for ADHD. My diagnosis put into perspective many things I had been thinking and feeling. With the help of medication, I was able to get both my ADHD and depression under control. I also found, and this is kind of important for people out there, I also found a support group through CHAD, that's C-H-A-D-D, that meets in San Francisco that helped me realize I wasn't alone. I'm at the point now where I have embraced my ADHD and see it as a strength. The constant movement of my mind has become an asset because I have a great deal of intellectual agility. I can engage with people on a wide variety of topics, and more importantly, I can see the big picture and identify connections that many others cannot. It's become an advantage, and I've come to see it as my superpower. Yeah, uh, Sarah Chung, I wanted to bounce this one to you on, on kind of two scores. I mean, one is... Seems like often people have these other diagnoses alongside ADHD that maybe can obscure or the the ADHD diagnosis. And I also just wanted to know if you yourself had also found support uh, through chat or some similar organization. 
Yes, I would say that, um, and I, I am also coming from with uh, some experience diagnosing and working with kids and families um, with ADHD. And so uh, the diagnosis often comes what we call comorbid with other difficulties. And it could completely be obscured. Uh, one of the things that we have to tease out as psychologists is, is it primarily is the first issue ADHD and that's influencing someone's mood or anxiety, mm. or is it the mood or anxiety um, or something else that is influencing the attention? Attention goes, um, I remember as Steve put it in our class, that attention goes whenever someone feels sick, whenever mm. someone feels down, it's the first thing to go when you're not feeling yourself. Um, so uh, that's why a lot of times it is missed and it takes kind of that uh, motivation to get people into the door to really figure out that it's the attention that's really co contributing to the feelings of self-esteem and self-doubt um, and the worries about missing things that are important to them. Um, I have... I have unfortunately not gone to uh, experience a support group from Chad. Thank you so much for pointing that out, Thomas. Um, I have definitely heard of Chad. It's a great resource. And so um, that's on my to-do list to look up Chad and what they have to offer for adults. Yeah. I have a bunch of other great comments from people who you know have gotten diagnoses and are have, have learned to live with it. Uh, Sparrow writes in to say, thank you so much for this topic. I've had ADHD since I was a kid, but my parents thought it was best not to medicate me. I've definitely struggled with focus and anxiety as well as depression in my adulthood. I'm in my 40s now, and it wasn't until my 30s that I decided to start taking medication, and it made a world of difference for me. Uh, Rachel writes in to say, and we, we may get to this actually after the break, but my Rachel writes, my best friend has been diagnosed as an adult with ADD, the inattentive version, and has been on medication for it. She is less erratic while on the medication. However, as her friend, I still see her struggling with finances, timing, and tardiness to important engagements like work to the point where she'd lost jobs for being late, attention at social gatherings, and often I'm concerned about her regulation of continuing her medication. She's particularly sensitive to offers of help or assistance and gets insulted and offended if they're suggested. How do I support my friend without patronizing her, especially as I witness her struggling with regulation in key aspects of survival in adult working life? We will get an answer to that question when we come back. We are talking about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and ways to cope with and live with the condition. We're joined by Sarah Chung, postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF School of Medicine. She was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We're also joined by Steve Hinshaw, distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Hinshaw is also a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF, and his latest book is Straight Talk About ADHD in Girls. It's coming out this month. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on this important topic right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and ways to cope and live with the condition. Joined by Steve Hinshaw, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and Sarah Chung, Postdoctoral Fellow, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF School of Medicine. We're going to go to the phones in a second, but I wanted to get an answer from you, Steve, uh, about... Rachel's comment about supporting a friend without patronizing her, even as she's kind of watching her struggle with these, with the key aspects of adulting. This is a struggle for therapists. It's a struggle for family members and friends. You may be noticing a pattern that doesn't seem like it's really helping the person in question. But when you start to raise the issue, you're met with defensiveness and I think that defensiveness is often, certainly not always, related to some difficulty recognizing that there may be this problem and you'd like to ward it off and it makes you feel weaker and et cetera, et cetera. And a a light touch is good. It's like parents dealing with adolescents and adolescents, of course, have lots of issues all the time. And there's that period in development between 10 and 12.5 where you have to drop the preteen off two blocks from the friend's house or the movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) But if a parent maintains an attitude, I'm here to listen anytime, then you'd be surprised when those preteens and teens take you up on it. And I would say the same thing that be present, be aware, don't push too hard. And there may be that magic moment where some of the revealing occurs. And if I could point out at the same time, uh, just pertinent to uh, other comments just, just before the break, talked about stigma before a big part of stigma is what's called internalized or self-stigma you know you're in this quote minoritized group or have this diagnosis and you feel that you don't deserve full credit as a human because you've internalized society's values a huge antidote is getting support from friends from teachers professional groups self-help groups we haven't had such self-help groups in mental health uh, until very recently And getting such support and solidarity is probably, along with getting really good evidence-based treatment, the best way to fight internalized or self-stigma. We have some very powerful calls coming up, so I want to get to those. Uh, Julie in Berkeley, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm trying to be calm, but I'm I'm really desperate. I'm an old, I can hit a bell, there's life in the old gal yet, but I'm an old black woman, uh, so it was three strikes against me, old, black, and female, and I'm on SSI because my life's been ruined. I thought I've had on the autism spectrum since I was about 12, but now I think that I have that, but I think I have raging ADHD because of what I've been reading in the past several years about it with, with like a lot of atypical symptoms, and I've, I, I, I haven't been able to to graduate from college, but 
but I have an excellent education. I studied at UC Berkeley, and I had a crisis of confidence and dropped out right before I was to graduate, mm. and I never was able to go back, and I can't get – I published uh, with two major publishers, and I can't get anybody because I'm on SSI. I can't, can't get any – uh, you know, Medicare or Medicare, yeah. any, any diagnosis, they won't do it for adults unless you join an Advantage program. And that, you know, I mean, that's just not working out, not going to work out. And I am i don't know what to do. And I get pathologized when I go see therapists and stuff. They just don't believe me. They think I'm lying. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't have like published books and published uh, academic paper and, and be on SSI and you're black. You must be, you know, lying and, and all, uh, schizophrenic or something. And this is after all this DEI stuff. I mean, the community medical system here in Berkeley has ill-served me. Mm. And it's just it's just made, it's just awful. I don't know what to do, and I know yeah. I'm not alone. Yeah. So I'm not just speaking for myself. No, what, I appreciate what, this. What be, yeah. what Julie, let me, let me ask uh, Steve Hinshaw if he's got... Talk to us a little bit about um, Julia's situation, uh, Professor Hinshan, what she might be able to do if she's having trouble accessing therapy, having trouble accessing help. Thank you for calling, uh, Julie. Julie, I'm so sorry to hear of this. ADHD can be revealed at any age. As again, before, you don't wake up one day with it in an adult, except for very rarely. It's been a longstanding pattern. But being black, being a woman, being on SSSI, it's kind of a triple whammy, as you said. I would really encourage you to reach out, and we probably can find a way to share some resources, to a local self-help support group, especially for women, uh, uh, girls and women, puberty, childbearing years, perimenopause, menopause. We know that these are biological forces that can exacerbate ADHD symptoms as well. So getting out of the kind of public medical um, facilities that you're going to where you're getting uh, ignored or and, and Medicaid around the country, Medi-Cal in California, still only pays for medication as a treatment. It doesn't pay for the other evidence-based treatments. If you could find support, and there are other people like you suffering with this, you're going to probably find people who can say, here's a practitioner who gets it. Here's somebody who's going to listen to you and it's never too late to get remoralized. It's never too late to get the right treatment. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in um, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. What's your story, Lauren? I am 57. I was just diagnosed a couple of months ago. So I've been going through, you know, a lot of, I mean, I've always felt like, one day I'm going to find out something very ordinary is wrong with me because I know that like there's these strong behaviors that don't seem to conform to the norm. And I just thought it was going to be some kind of some cliche psychological issue, but it was this. So, and how is it? I've gotten away how, with it. Yeah. How has no, it I, been I was for you? Say I've gotten away with it. I was, it's been so from third grade, I, a third grade teacher pointed out some strong issues with my behavior and my family um, come, you know, took that offensively, and they they combated that by getting me IQ tested, and found out I was a 98th percentile IQ, and that was enough to rebuff all the teachers who wanted to talk about me through the end of high school. 
So my grades were never great, but I was considered gifted, and nobody could, could um, you know, rag on my behavior too much because I had this test score behind me. Mm. So I'm not great. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel, now that you have this diagnosis, like, how are you feeling about coping with it? Like, for example, you know, you, you didn't want to use the city that you're you're calling from, and I assume that means you're feeling kind of stigmatized or, or worry about being stigmatized if other people find out about this diagnosis. I I, I kind of feel like, because I, think, I do agree with people that said it's this kind of a superpower, and my knowing it, I know how to help myself now. So whenever I hear something... You know, I can look for things that are ADHD tools, like an ADHD water jug I just got, which has changed my life. I mean, I drink enough water. I don't forget to drink water anymore. I used to always fill up a water cup and never drink it and wonder why I was dehydrated. I go to the ER for dehydration with a cup of water in my hand and never mm. drink it. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I need, I need a certain tool. And now I know what tools I need, so it's, it's helping me a lot. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for that call, Lauren. I mean... Sir Chung, as you hear people call in who are kind of sharing stories similar to your own, like, what does it make you feel to to feel like this adult ADHD conversation seems like it's kind of loosening and, and opening up? I am absolutely so appreciative, grateful for all of these callers and this conversation. And the conversation about stigma, I'm from a Chinese-American family. My parents are Chinese immigrants who had no idea what ADHD is and still don't. Um, it's very hard to explain to them. But stigma is something that is very near and dear to me and something that I'm hoping to combat by sharing these stories and hearing others. So yeah. it it's very reassuring. Um Dr. Hinch, I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions, things that I've been wondering about this phenomenon in our society. I mean, one is right now there's a lot of articles about it, and I've actually experienced it myself, companies pushing fast and easy video consultations to get access to ADHD uh, pharmaceuticals. You know, you see it on Instagram, you see it on, on TikTok. How are you thinking about those companies and what it is that they're trying to do? Two words in Latin, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. We need greater access to evidence-based treatments. This is a cottage industry in psychology and organizational business and in in policy these days. Um, You go to a big urban area and there's seemingly a million therapists, and they've all got two-year waiting lists. You go outside of major urban areas, and there's hardly any professionals. So tech can help, right? Apps can help. But the thought of doing a brief symptom screener and then getting access to powerful stimulant medications, stimulants shouldn't be called stimulants. They should be called SDRIs. They're selective dopamine reuptake inhibitors. We all know what an SSRI with serotonin stimulants keep dopamine in the synapse longer, make it work, but in the wrong hands, they can be powerful drugs of abuse. So having quick and dirty access to stimulants without a careful screening and without knowing the person's strengths and weaknesses and where the medications will be, are there kids around, people people are willing to sell stimulants all the time, this can be the wrong use of apps and tech and um, uh, quick access to assessments because many 
the, the majority of medications for ADHD are in the stimulant class, which can work wonders if you find the right dose and the right uh, the right kind of stimulant under good medical supervision, and they can be a disaster if they're dispensed wantonly. Yeah. We were also talking about the incidence of ADHD in the U.S. being, you know, double what has been found in these big meta-analyses to be the the global average. The other the, the question I have there is, you know, you attributed it to kind of this performance culture in our schools. It feels like a lot of people that I talk to in my life would attribute it, maybe some of it to that, but also just the availability of screen-based information that's very attractive to people, you know, that there's in the way that maybe there's an obesogenic environment in the United States that makes people here more likely to gain weight, that maybe there's this, that there's a broader informational environment that makes people more prone to having their attention be redirected away from their actual real goals. So I think there's there's something to this for sure. We know that ADHD is quite heritable. Genes predict the vast majority of whether you have ADHD and I don't or vice versa. But all of us, well, it's like with height. How tall we are is largely the product of genes. But we're all three to four inches taller than our great-great-grandparents, not because of genes that have mutated, but because of different nutrition patterns. We're all more scattered and inattentive than before because of the constant barrage of media and social media and who reads a book anymore. We only read snippets or tweets. And still, within that changed culture, there are big individual differences on how well you can focus. So we don't want to say that the current social media uh, environment has created ADHD. It hasn't, but it may be revealing it. I mean, it's both a, a curse and a blessing, isn't it? Because many people with ADHD are really fast taskers. But if you do things too fast all the time, you'll miss that crucial detail <laughs> that one of our callers talked about a few minutes ago. So as we start to regulate social media for youth, as we start to prioritize deep reading of text rather than quick reading of a jillion things in our environment, maybe we'll swing back in some ways. But there's a problem, but it's also, again, many people with ADHD can thrive in a high-paced social media environment. Yeah. Um, we have some really interesting comments coming in about uh, medication. Um, Serena writes, my partner struggles quite a bit with ADHD and a learning disorder compounding the issue. My partner's never wanted to take medication for this. What are the other options for treatment that have worked for folks? So we'll hold that in mind and read uh, another one from Anna. Anna writes, I am on ADHD medication, but I want to add that medication isn't the magic potion that solves the issue. It does help me focus, but I also want to do what I'm supposed to do. There are ADHD coaches and therapists that help with this. Also, joining a Facebook group or any group of people with ADHD is important. As a black woman in the sciences, I see how for years people thought I was just lazy. But now there's so much I have achieved in my work once I started the medicine and got tools in my toolbox from therapy to navigate the world with ADHD. This is also the biggest financial investment in my health, but unfortunately many can't do this and go undiagnosed and without medication. So Steve, I wanted to come to you on this. Just There's a, there's a bunch of questions that arise from, from these comments. Um, most specifically, perhaps, the relationship between medication and other ways of managing ADHD. So there are two overall clearly evidence-based treatments for ADHD. 
One are medications, stimulants, and then there's other non-stimulant medications, much less addictive potential, well, that can be very effective as well. And the second is the large group of what we call behavioral and cognitive behavioral treatments. For a kid, this is setting up a reward chart, uh, rewarding small steps, coordinating goals between the teacher and the family, being much more consistent in parenting. Quote, bad parenting doesn't cause ADHD, but it might contribute to it. And then for late teens and adults, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has been adapted for ADHD and shown to be quite effective. Organizational skills and management, anger management, time management. Sarah talked about all of a sudden, she was in tune with the rest of the world's timing once she got diagnosed and, and treated. And you don't necessarily have to treat that with medication. We know in the vast majority of studies, people who get on the right dose of medication and get these behavioral and cognitive behavioral and organizational uh, uh, psychosocial treatments as well, the best effects are often with a combination. Mm. Sarah, do you have um, thoughts on the sort of relationship between the medication you take as a treatment and the other things you do to help yourself? Oh, certainly. As Steve mentioned, it's really the combination. And um, one of the thoughts that I did have uh, was that the focus on treatment has been on medication in this uh, forum. And I did very much wanted to point out that there are other treatments that are very effective. Um, utilizing those tools, oftentimes people figure it out um, on their own, but there are therapists and coaches, as the caller mentioned, um, who are there to help and they're helped to provide um, a structure and support system to keep you accountable, to help think through the types of tools that might be most effective for your current life and circumstance and relationships. And it might be through changing how you try to remind yourself or how to break down larger goals into smaller ones um, or how to approach a conversation with thoughtfulness and how to regulate the big feelings that come with difficult conversations. Yeah. Sir, great uh, tips. We have been talking about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, ways of coping and living with that condition. I want to thank the many people who called in. We weren't able to get to as many as I wanted to. Um, thank you to my guest, Steve Hinshaw, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Hinshaw is also Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UC San Francisco. His latest book is Straight Talk About ADHD in Girls. It's coming out this month. He was actually also on forum for another book, Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. And we were, of course, joined by Sarah Chung, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF School of Medicine. She was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and is studying ADHD as a member of the Hyperactivity, Attention, and Learning Problems Clinic at UCSF. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to all of our callers and commenters. Thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.